0: welcome to Northern Natter, a podcast by journalists for journalists who don't want to move down south. If you're just getting into the industry, studying or soon to be graduating, then this is the podcast
1: for you. We're sharing all the tips, tricks and stories from people in the industry from Scotland and north of England.
0: I'm Katie Baggett from Sunderland and graduated in July 2019 from the University of Sunderland. I have worked at the community radio station Spark FM and various news websites. I now work in higher education and freelance as a journalist and audio producer.
1: And I'm Katie Williams, the other half of this Katie duo. I'm a freelance multimedia journalist and podcast producer from Scotland. After graduating a couple of years ago with a journalism and film degree, I now create content for the BBC The Social online platform.
0: There are stories that need to be heard and opportunities in Northern England and Scotland.
1: And we want to find out how we can get them, because we don't want to move to London. Hello and welcome to another episode of Northern Natter with me, Katie Williams and Katie Baggett. Today we are with Ali Tibbet, founding director and journalist of The Ferret. He is also head of engagement at Open Democracy. In this episode, we are nattering all about starting your own publication, and we will also hear from Rachel Charlton Daly, who's founder of the Unwritten later on.
0: So, I guess to start off, uh, just a bit about who, like, what you do, um, and a bit about you.
2: Yeah. So, um, I am one of the founding directors of the Ferret. I, by day, uh, I work for Open Democracy part time, and I also. Do a little bit of journalism and a little bit of uh, looking after the website and the members of the ferret. Um, so I do that one day a week.
1: What made you get into like journalism and start the ferret? Yeah,
2: so, well, I suppose we could separate me from the ferret for a start. I mean, I don't have any journalism training. I started out doing community engagement around a little environmental project in Leith, in Edinburgh. Uh, about 15 years ago at the time i worked for the council and uh, i set up a little charity on the side called greener leaf and it was about community you know community involvement in decision making and and especially on environmental stuff bizarrely it became one of the kind of most read environmental blogs in the uk for a while that coincided with stv setting up uh getting becoming interested in hyperlocal journalism kind of luckily for me funding was just beginning to run out for a big grant that had employed me to do Green Leith and uh, managed to persuade real journalists at STV to hire me just to, just to cover Leith. So I was basically doing the same job, but for STV. And the rest is history. I was there for about seven and a half years and ended up uh, managing their audience engagement team. So that's how I fell into journalism, <laughs> if you like. Uh, yeah, I and... need to
1: ask you, how did you persuade STV to take you on? I mean, what is that trick to get? Did you, did you just ask? Did you apply? Do you sneak them some money?
2: They were they were quite worried. And I think they were still, you know, when I joined there, you know, for my entire career at STV, there were people a bit concerned that I might be more of an activist than a journalist, if you like. How did I persuade them? They were, I think they felt that they had as much to learn from me about digital at the time as I did from them about being, you know, doing professional journalism. And, you know, so I look back at things that I published on Greenleaf Blog and think, my goodness, it's only because of the and effect that I didn't get sued by private companies <laughs> and, <laughs> and things like that. Um, and, you know, obviously, I learned a lot about defamation law and, and, and the, the things that, you know, and right to reply and the basics of things which journalists all take very seriously. At the time, you know, they gave all of, they hired a load of journalists and gave them all an iPhone and set them free in the neighborhood to kind of do digital journalism, almost as an experiment for them.
1: How long ago was that?
2: That was probably, ooh, let's have a think. That would be about 10 years ago now. It's quite a while ago.
1: You know, because it seems like quite normal now for sort of like community journalism to go out and use their phone like there is a lot of sort of mobile journalism mm-hmm. about. That sounds like it would have been
2: We just, had iPhone 4. No, whatever the iPhone 4 the iPhone came.
1: Out. Yeah, I did loved, I loved my iPhone 4.
2: So I was involved in mm-hmm. that. Um and alongside that, I was in contact with other journalists. So the other people who founded The ferret included uh, or informed the ferret's thinking, if you like. So, you know, alongside STD doing that, there was also the Guardian Local Project. I don't know if you remember the Guardian Local. So that was in Edinburgh. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. there was that inspiration. I just, you know, Green Elite had still been going on, but um, I was kind of clear that a charity model wasn't quite right, partly because charities are limited, you know, in what they can say. So there's, there's restrictions on political campaigning if you're a charity. And simultaneously, we were speaking to people like um, Rob Edwards, who's still the Ferret today. Peter Gagan, who's the chair of the Ferret and also works at Open Democracy. People like Andy Whiteman, who were doing a lot of stuff, who's an MSP now, but was doing a lot of stuff on freedom of information and some other people. And we kind of had this informal we called it FOI Club, <laughs> and and whenever we Freedom
1: Information Club.
2: Yeah, that's right, Freedom Information Club. But whenever we, you know, hit a barrier with a weird FOI, we would just email ourselves, email around informally behind the scenes, and sort of say, "Well, what, what would you think about this? What would you do next?" Kind of stuff. And there was one fateful evening when Peter, uh, I think Peter Gagan uh, arranged for his pal Gavin Sheridan to come over to Edinburgh and give a talk about a project which he set up in Ireland which was all about transparency. We wanted to set up something like that in Scotland. And thus the Scottish Enquirer was born, which was its first, the ferret's first name. And we got a grant of two and a half thousand pounds from co ops UK. And we changed the name to the ferret and that's how it was born.
0: It takes a lot of courage and a lot of confidence, especially even from a journalist's point of view and how you run about active, activists as well. It takes a lot of courage and confidence. For anyone, really, but it is groundbreaking, as Katie said before. It's like something that you've put your name to and other people have got involved in. So yeah, it sounds it sounds fantastic. It's really inspirational, especially to any like young journalists
1: that are listening.
2: Well, I think I think you can just do it. You know,
1: were you nervous about setting up?
2: I think, like I say, I mean, I've been involved in setting up other things, so you know, in a way, I feel like a bit of a sort of serial social entrepreneur now. (laughs) <laughs> you know I've helped my wife set up her business and stuff as well and oh brilliant but you know you need different people at different times and people with different skills so you know one of the the ferret is a happy it's like a happy confluence of lots of people with lots of different skills and lots of different interests and so we've always worked with a sort of hardcore team of quite established people with important kind of niches which possibly don't get the biggest showing in the kind of mainstream media
1: was it important for you to sort of you know you mentioned earlier that you wouldn't get that sort of Appreciation from like a mainstream media was it important for you then to create that space?
2: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think um, you know we were actually quite keen not to you know like a lot of new startups almost start off in opposition to the mainstream media. And actually, all of us were working freelance or 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 on contract um, in my case mm-hmm. to to the mainstream media, if you like, with our day jobs. And so, you know, in a way, the fair is really quite traditional.
1: Yeah, well, when I think of the fairies, I do think of like of your fact checking. Because that's usually what I see like on my feed and things like that. So I think, and I think it's quite, when you become a sort of fact checking source, I think it's difficult to be either side because you are just stating the fact. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that that's people who would say, oh, you're either one like left wing or right wing or whatever.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I don't think, I don't think it's a valid argument.
2: Well, I'm glad, that, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it's uh, you know, it's it's obviously you know, if you only look at Twitter, where it's everything's a bun fight, then you know you can't keep all of the people happy all the time. And some uh, quite often with fact checks, you're telling people stuff that they might not want to hear. But that's what we're here to do, right? I mean, that's the that's the public interest in it. So um, that's the aim of the fair. And you know, the other the other side of the fair is to try and think of a new way to. We were genuinely interested and still are interested in how you engage readers not just in the editorial but also actually in the ownership and the governance and and how you become you know what what does an accountable media really look like if you build it into the governance when you become a subscriber to the fair you're not just you're not just subscribing to be sort of told what the news of the day is you become a part owner of the project and you can stand as a director of the project
0: I love like the the transparency and the openness with it all I was thinking before, definitely when you're starting your own publication and you're launching your sort of values for that, is the open, obviously, if you wanted to comment on this, um, just about like how you pay your journalists and writers.
2: So um, we have a standard day rate, which everybody gets paid. So we pay everybody 120 quid a day, and that's the same whatever job you do. You know, we do sometimes pay a bigger freelance fee than that but um only if the story's kind of worth it or if you know if somebody's put in somebody puts in 4 days work to bring, bring in a story then we'll pay them 4 days. If you go uh, to our website you'll be able to find hopefully an annual report and what we do is we break down all the money that we get in and where it comes from and and generally how it goes back out again. So again in terms of that transparency you know we take the view that any of our subscribers who are also our, our members could become directors and therefore they need to know how the business operates and the truth about it, if you like. So, you know, I said before we've got 1,700 odd, we're on the way to 1,700 paying members. That brings in about we're on the edge of 63,000 pounds a year when you think about it. That's um, that's enough for a couple of people and the website part time. You know, we still get 50% of our money from grants, 40% from subs, 10% from content sales.
1: That's good because there seems to be a lot of people they like starting up their own independent publications and stuff and I suppose the one I don't don't know I think "flaws" is like the wrong word Mm. but basically if you're starting up your own independent you can't a lot of people struggle to pay their writers what would you say to these people who are starting up those publications I mean some of them are like voluntary and like it can be like a hobby but for those who want to start monetizing their publication
2: I don't think there's an easy answer I, I you know I mean I think I won't pretend that the ferret has always managed to pay everybody for every bit of sweat equity that people have put in but the flip side of that is you kind of own the business, right? So we've always paid external people. We've always tried to pay freelancers the same day rate that we try to pay ourselves. I would encourage people to be entrepreneurial. Think about the product that they're launching. And I think every product has a slightly different revenue model. You know, some people might be able to fund what they do just from ads and sponsorships. Some people might be able, but you know, that's quite a long game. You've got to build the audience first. I would treat grants kind of almost like pump priming if you if you have the structure set up to do that. So the way we see a lot of grant funding is, we've been very lucky to get grant funding from the Luminate group, for example, and amongst others, and Google DNI and what have you, and and that's, that gives you, you know, that that gives you the resources to produce more content, which in turn attracts more subscribers, so you grow faster. Essentially, <laughs> you know, without those grants, we wouldn't have had the capacity to go as fast as we we'd have done and we would have been doing more voluntary stuff. For the first time, I think this year, I felt like, well, okay, we're bringing in enough money now that there's always going to be a couple of people working part time on it, which is a great feeling because that when we started off, we said we want to, you know, that was kind of minimum level of income that we wanted to generate ourselves independently from anybody else. And it's taken us five years and a lot of hard work to get there
1: yeah well i mean these things don't happen overnight do they
2: no no they don't you know no digital product just goes from zero to profitable i don't think any media project goes from zero to profitable or sustainable depending on your model there's a lot of different ways to make money so you know there's there's obviously direct reader revenue which everybody's chasing at the moment now in some ways we're thinking about everybody's zigging towards reader revenue maybe we should zag in some other direction there's events Mm -hmm. there's training there's you know there's kind of consultancy stuff there's you know which you might not think of as journalism or the add-ons or 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 whatever or sponsorships and you know there's there's, there are different ways to to make money and support support your core journalism if you like
0: definitely i think there's only nowadays there's more avenues you can go down but still support that local core journalism
2: you know, I'm really jealous of people starting up now because there are things like Substack and there are things like Patreon and there are... I think, in theory, they make it a lot easier to to get going with.
1: We haven't made any money on them yet, but <laughs> there's still time.
2: So the tools are there.
1: It still just sits there. We've still got just £3 in our coffee account.
2: That'll, that'll buy you a coffee, just about, won't
1: it? Yep. One coffee, we can share it. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone does want to give us money... <laughs> I think for
0: any listeners... Um who are listening to this podcast episode, we haven't really touched on investigative journalism before. And I know when I was at university, that's something that I'd never really thought of before. And I did a module in and loved it. If you had any tips on that sort of uh, journalism for anyone who's listening. I
2: think the key thing about being an investigative journalist is that you'd really need to be kind of passionate about what you're what you're investigating. Um, I know that sounds really obvious, but the first thing is you need to know what you're kind of looking into and where to dig. I think on lockdown, obviously, you know, it won't surprise you to learn, given our aff- affection for freedom of information, that a lot of what we do is based on freedom of information. So that's releasing data sets, you know, and being really kind of strategic about how we use FOI. So, you know, there are times when we've looked at a particular topic and, you know, organizations must really, really, really hate us because we've kind of taken them apart with FOI and just sort of said, right, you know, send me all your registers of interest and send me all your card spending and send me all your, you know, travel expenses. And and I think the best FOIs are, you know, the best work that we've done again is often when you get a tip off from somebody, you know, a whistleblower who's inside and then you go and back that up with, with FOI or whatever. So quite often you're sort of triangulating. There's no, there's not an easy way in it's becoming known for being the person who writes about that particular thing and developing a niche. we now get people whistleblowing to us about environmental stuff all the time the other journalists like karen goodwin who's on the editorial team she's you know she specializes in in homelessness and kind of social social issues asylum seekers and asylum issues and she's probably the leading journalist in scotland on those topics and so she gets you know she has great relationships with all the local ngos and you know people come to her because she's they know they trust her to treat the subject sensitively uh, and and not sensationalise it and you know she's built up all those relationships with all the NGOs so and you can see that in her work but you know just this week for example Karen published a story which on the fair this week which highlighted the fact that in Scotland at least um, people who wanted to go into rehab had to choose between homelessness or going into rehab because the, the rehab services were using housing benefit to fund them and just this week you know the the minister and the Scottish government saw this and you know it wasn't just the ferret covering this it was also shelter highlighting this but you know we helped to put it into the public domain and when it was in the public domain the minister had to respond and she found amazingly the Scottish government found a few tens of millions this week just to fix that problem and so we can go back to our members and say you helped to do this you helped to change this public policy and that's that's actually what reader, you know, our our slogan at the fair is good journalism changes things.
1: So what would you say are your, or just okay, maybe just a generalised tips tips for, um, for young journalists?
2: I think you have to be passionate about whatever it is. It helps if you're passionate about something which is like in public interest as opposed to kind of just stamp collecting. But write about what you're interested in. It's one of those weird things where the internet is, at least 50% of the internet is powered by outrage. So if you can be outraged by something that lots of other people are outraged about, whether that's you know corruption or bad housing conditions, the appalling the appalling quality of burgers in in Sunderland, and I don't know if there are bad burgers in Sunderland. I hasten to add, Katie, I'm sorry, but uh, but you know what I mean, right? Like something to get people going, and I think that. And if you're passionate about it, it shows up in it shows up in your writing. You're gonna you know you're gonna know the other people who are passionate about that. You're gonna know what motivates them, and and it's and it's and stick to it.
3: About that just you I've got a dog on the corner. I am Rachel Charlton Daly. I am a freelance journalist, but I'm also editor-in-chief and founder of The Unwritten, a new publication for disabled people telling disabled people stories in their own words without making it about inspiration or trauma. Was that alright? Yeah, no, that's perfect. <laughs> what kind of piece of advice or any tips would
0: you give to uh, someone starting their own uh, publication or had thoughts about
3: starting their publication have a clear like um, image in your head of what you want the publication to be and at the same time have a clear image of what you don't want the publication to be so if things start to go a bit in your head and you start going off kilter a bit and you start getting ahead of yourself you can pull yourself back and go this isn't what we're about but at the same time you can look ahead and go we want to do this we want to do this we want to achieve this in the next year and really plan it out you know like don't think that you can start it like at the snap of your fingers but at the same time don't be like bound by thinking we've got to have all this money we've got to we've got to have like a big massive high-tech website because I started it from like I started it from my living room bear in mind I mean fair enough my husband does create websites for a living but I went and created half the stuff without telling him about it and he didn't even know the website had gone live (laughs) (laughs) I mean don't, don't worry about like yeah it's a lot of the things like crowdfunding and stuff like that can be hard especially if you want to pay your writers but don't think that you've got that you've got to wait to launch your website until you've got all the money you know that if it's something that people are passionate about people are going to believe in you and people are going to want to help you along the way That's that's the big thing that really shocked me like I knew that I believed in it but I didn't realize how much other people were going to believe in it like we've got this big joke in uh, in the unwritten group chat with me, Caroline and Hannah, who does our PR that uh, it's not a proper day unless I've cried like three times because I have so many happy cries about Aww. how well received it is. It's ridiculous, honestly.
1: Oh, that's so <laughs> how, how did you find it when when you were trying to crowdfund
3: It's hard. It's really hard. Like, don't expect to get thousands of pounds. Like, out of nothing, you know. Especially when it's something in a marginalised group because the people people who your audience are especially like like disabled people it's the same with queer people it's the same with black people they don't have a lot of money we don't have a lot of money ourselves like we don't have a lot of disposable income a lot of us are on benefits a lot of us don't have jobs so it's not of course it's something we want to donate to but it's not something we can uh so crowdfunding has been hard but We'll get drips and draps, you know, like that's how we do it. We get like 20 quid here, five, sometimes we'll get 50 or 100. It always feels like people really believe in you when they do give you money because it's like you always get a nice little... People often leave you a nice little message like telling you to keep on going and stuff like that. And it's a, a slush when people do things like that. It's like, oh,
0: they believe in us. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like, especially like starting your own publication, it's like that whole, wholesome feeling of like, oh, like people... You, oh my.
3: You're, doing, you're doing it for a reason as well so you
0: know. it's
3: ridiculous like like I keep saying it but I knew that it was I knew that it was wanted but I didn't know that it was needed so much like like how little disabled people especially are represented in the media I feel like this is such a big I don't want to be big-headed but I feel like this is such a big turning point because we we're finally starting to have our own space in the media and there's places that disabled people can exclusively pitch to there's not just us there's places like the breakdown and others like small publications are having like little subsections like aurelia and the flock and the spill are having little subsections to do with disability and mental health and stuff
0: um the angel question like <laughs> we always ask uh, as well is from your experience uh do you think you need to move a uh, dance out to London uh, to be a
3: successful journalist. Oh, no. I wouldn't move to London if you paid us. No. <laughs> I wouldn't, I would never move to London. I think, I think there is still a lot of stuff in the newsrooms, especially, which was really disappointing because, like, in during the lockdown, everything moved online and i've been the reason i'm a freelance journalist is because i've never been able to get a newsroom job because i wouldn't be able to work in a newsroom because of my illnesses and because of my disability and i've been being told for years that in order to be a successful journalist i've got to work in, i've got to work in an office which is usually in london and then it was a massive kick in the teeth to see everybody boasting about how great their newsrooms were that they were that they were working from home like that during the pandemic and then they started advertising jobs in the last few months that are going to be uh, that are going to be back down London as soon as possible. So they're not that great, and they're still planning on moving back, and they're still planning on moving back to the office as soon as possible. And it's just like you don't need you. The last year has proven how great things work when they're not in when they're not in the office, and everybody's got the freedom to do what they want. Yeah, like, exactly. You just don't need to.
1: No, and I think it's really frustrating for people who have like yourself who haven't been able like you can't work in a new room mm-hmm. who it benefits better to work from home mm-hmm. and have had you know a lot of people have been told oh you know we don't we don't support working mm-hmm. from home blah blah to show it to happen it can be done this year on the past mm-hmm. 12 months yes it can be done but then it to be taken away as if it never That's happened
3: awful, honestly like it's absolutely ridiculous mm-hmm. so what bits of advice
1: would you give to people who've maybe started their publication but want to like make it bigger who want to start monetizing it or want to get more writers on board
3: monetizing we're not doing so great at the monetizing at the moment because we haven't got a, a lot of the funds at the moment but just getting your name out there you know like not being afraid to um not being afraid to get your name out there and you don't know like things don't always have to make money like do things like podcasts do things like like don't you don't always have to think of things in terms of okay is this going to make me money if I do it so like a lot of the things that I do to promote the website aren't gonna make me money but they'll take they'll take like what half an hour of my day and more people will have heard of me by the end of it so that's what you've got to do you've got to get your name out there like I spend a lot of my time on Twitter but because I spend so much of my time on Twitter it means my six seven thousand followers are starting to move over to the Unwritten's Twitter. And it's all about just getting your name out there and not being afraid to promote, like, not being afraid to sound big-headed and sound, and sounding like you're going, we're the best thing out here right now. What's
0: <laughs> like, motto what to have, like, especially when you're launching your own publication, like, you've got to have the belief in yourself
3: and you're doing some fab work. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're doing good stuff, you know? We've got to, like... I mean, getting writers on board was... I mean, we were really lucky with getting writers on board because there were so many that didn't that didn't have a voice and we'll get into and especially disability like you get turned down so much when you're trying to when you're trying to do freelance stuff you know because if mm. if a publication has already had somebody disabled writing about them that writing about that month they'll be like oh no we've already had this sorry that's like <laughs> so it was quite easy to get writers on board but at the same time, getting them to stick around and getting them to come back to where we didn't have a lot of money was was the was the um was the problem and that was that was part of just making it feel more like a community and that's what we really wanted to do. That's what we wanted to do with a Twitter and we wanted to do even when we weren't really offering a lot in terms of like monetary stuff, like we weren't able to pay people a lot, we wanted to give them the sense that they had somewhere to belong. Yeah. You know, like that because there is a lot that there's not a lot of space for disabled people online there's still not a lot of space for disabled people online where you're going to be free from trolling and stuff and we can't always guarantee that we're going to be free from trolling because it's bloody twitter you know but
0: yeah
3: like yeah. that's just what we wanted we just wanted people to feel like this was somewhere for them that wasn't like that wasn't gonna single them out and make them feel like they had to either be inspirational or they had to pour all the whole into it and just you know and get thrown away when the next big story came yeah
0: well it sounds like you've got a really good uh, community there so yeah i'm funny. gonna go do a
3: little cry now <laughs> i just made myself do a little cry honestly this is what i'm like every single day <laughs> you should be so proud of yourself Thank you so much, Rachel. I know this is really short and sweet, but we didn't want to take No, so I've cried twice. That's enough, you know. Like, I'm done. I'm going to go have a nap now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exhausted.
1: And if anyone mm-hmm. wants to, do, to donate to the Unwritten, then they can click mm-hmm. the link.
2: That's great, yeah. Okay,
1: well, Rachel, we will let you go. Thank oh, you so that's much. Brilliant. Thank you yeah, so
2: much. Nice. Bye. Right,
3: bye. Bye.
2: It's been great to to come on the Northern Matter podcast, but uh, I'd love if people, if your listeners who are obviously already podcast addicts would consider listening to, also subscribing to the FFS show, which uh, doesn't have any, doesn't stand for anything rude. It stands for the Ferret Fact Service show. So the Ferret is home to uh, a fact-checking project and we've just, we're on our second episode at the moment. If you imagine it a bit like a Northern version of Radio 4's more or less.
1: And can if anyone has any questions for you, where can they get in contact with you?
2: Uh, probably Twitter is the best way. I'm just uh, at Aly double t W B I T. All
1: right, that's great. Well, thank you so so much for coming on. We really appreciate and appreciate giving your time and all your advice as well.
2: No, well, thank you very much for having me. Take care.
1: so much for joining us and why not give us a follow on social media over at Northern Natter we're on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to share and follow us to keep up to date and we really appreciate the support. So for me Katie Williams and me Katie Baggett, This is Northern Natter.